You're listening to a podcast from Blogging Heads TV. We are underway. Hello, Charles. Good morning, Glenn. This is Glenn Lowry. It's the Glenn Show, bloggingheads.tv and patreon.com. I'm with Charles Murray. Charles barely needs an introduction, but I'm going to give him one anyway. This is uh, a great social scientist who's written, you know, books that have shaken the foundation of our intellectual lives. Uh, I can count them losing ground for a decade, set the terms of the debate about welfare reform. If you look at Bill Clinton's welfare reform of 1996, you'll see the 80 imprint of his 1984 book. The Bell Curve with Richard Herrnstein is still being talked about a quarter century later, an engagement with the question of uh, human uh, intelligence, uh, the differences amongst people in their intellectual and cognitive capacities and the implications of that for American social life. A notorious and also a profoundly influential book, uh, a very brave book, Coming Apart. I'm, I'm leaving out books. I'm leaving out human accomplishment, for example. I'm leaving out human diversity, uh, which I discussed here at the podcast with Amy Wax, uh, that uh, so impressed me with the audacity of the intellectual project undertaken to uh, survey these vast literatures. But, okay, that's enough of praising Charles Murray's books. He's also notorious. Charles Murray, the Southern Poverty Law Center. I, I looked him up, man. I looked up what the Southern Poverty Law Center has to say about Charles Murray before, uh, before coming on to do this interview with you. And uh, you are a white supremacist in, in their book. And, and I'm told that that is sticking, that, that, that they threw something up against the wall against you that is sticking. You ought to get a chance to defend yourself against that charge. But I'm uh, especially pleased to be talking to Charles now because um, he has a new book that's coming out momentarily from Encounter Books called Facing Reality, Two Facts About Race in America. Did I get the subtitle right? Yeah, that's it. And, uh, and, and we're here to discuss that. And I want to let Charles describe the book. But, um, Charles, you got any reaction to that initial introduction? Well, first, you didn't get the subtitle exactly right. I glanced over because I was looking at that it's two truths about race in America. So Not facts, well, truths, two truths. Okay, yeah, we'll get well, to that. For the first couple of years after the bell curve came out, I was very defensive, you know, and, and hurt and troubled and all sorts of things. And then I remember, I think it was in Las Vegas at uh, Freedom Fest, which is this annual, you know, libertarian thing. And I was giving a talk about uh, the bell curve. And all at once I realized halfway into it, I wasn't defensive. I was just talking about it and I was fine and and so that was kind of a breaking point and since then a lot of stuff has happened and uh poor andrew sullivan is still catching shit uh, for, uh that that long tnr new republic uh issue that he devoted to the book but it doesn't really make any difference anymore because i sort of live in a very pleasant world with my friends and i'm active on twitter but i mute people who say stupid abusive things so you know look you've, you've caught a lot of the same kind of flack you've learned how to live with it too i've got nothing like the flack that you've caught uh, i have caught some flack but um <laughs> uh i was talking with some of my fellow fellows at the hoover institution where i just signed on as a distinguished visiting fellow recently congratulations thank you neil ferguson 
uh, John Cochran, the economist, uh, HR McMaster, the defense intellectual. And uh, you came up and your book came up. Um, Mary has taken the third rail of American political culture and grabbed it with both hands. Quote, unquote. <laughs> it sounds like something that Neil would come up with. Uh, or is that what you said? No, no, that, that is what Neil said. That's the way Neil put it. Uh, apparently, you came out there to give a lecture at some point. And there was a lot of uh, blowback and yeah. consternation in the wake of that and whatnot. We all know about what happened at Middlebury College when you got invited there and got attacked and so on. I can't get you invited to Brown. Not that I'm trying that hard, Charles. I got other <laughs> fish to fry. <laughs> I mean, why waste my capital, you know? <laughs> but you know what? I, I, I spoke at Brown and had a big audience and was very well received What uh, just after the bell curve came out. So that's 12, 2013, maybe, that I spoke. That's how much the environment has changed. In the that was John Tomasi who invited you, right. my colleague. Right. I actually heard your lecture there, um, and uh, it was innocuous enough. I mean, you know, <laughs> but uh, that was coming apart, wasn't it? Yeah, that was coming apart. Yeah. Uh, okay, so uh, we're here to talk about uh, facing reality, and um, the, your concerns about the future of our republic are are very graphically conveyed there. Um, I want to let you summarize the book. You, you, you basically, oh, I, I want to say this about the book, if I may. I read it in one night. I couldn't put the darn thing down. First of all, it's just beautifully exposited. It's just seamless. Uh, you march us through the data. You, you start with this... Uh, what is race? Let's look at the demography. Where are these people living? You have beautiful graphic illustrations of your data in the book. Uh, it's really a pleasure uh, to, to encounter that kind of uh, disciplined, uh, uh, you know, uh, you, 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 uh, you finesse a lot of the technical stuff and you make it so that just about anybody, truck driver, waitress at the cafe, anybody can read that book and come away with the information that you want them to have. Um, and you march us through the facts on two issues. What are the racial differences in um, mental ability, cognitive ability, intelligence as uh, measured by the tests that people take of mental ability? And uh, you systematically survey the data on that. And you march us through the question of what are the differences between racial groups and commission of violent criminal offenses? homicide, rape, robbery, assault for a set of cities that you can get your hands on the data for and you march us through that. You say, these are facts. Uh, we had better face them. Uh, and here's why. Uh, and uh, you can consume this review of the facts, uh, as I say, in an afternoon uh, and then grapple with your situating of these facts. Why? Why is this important? So, um, I wonder if we could just proceed here, uh, at least at the start, by uh, having you review these facts for us in short compass, uh, but especially talk about uh, what you think is going on in American political culture, that it is so centrally important for us to confront these facts. Let, let me start with that, because uh, this this book has a little evolution. Last summer, with the protests and the riots after uh, the, the, the Minneapolis, 
you and, and in other cities too, I was dismayed by the degree to which <laughs> New York Times, Washington Post, NBC, CBS, you go through the whole list of media outlets, never once mentioned that when police go into a low-income black neighborhood in a big city, they are entering a much more dangerous environment when they're out in a in a white suburb. Okay, that's simply the reality the cops face, and the, and the behavior of cops is affected by the the nature of the environment they're in. That's pretty basic stuff, uh, which doesn't excuse videos that have gone viral of police shooting people walking away from them and that sort of thing. Doesn't excuse it at all. But I'm saying that if you're talking about what goes on in policing in the black community or the Latino community, for that matter, you have to understand the environment the police are facing. And then you had uh, the accusations of systemic racism. And that's that phrase, systemic racism, that drives me nuts. Systemic racism in the job market. So why is it that you don't have more senior management in the big corporations, especially the IT corporations, et cetera, et cetera? And I said, well, you know, it's not that the people at Google say we don't want to hire black people or Latino people. They'd love to. But the number of people coming into the pipeline, who are qualified for the kinds of jobs they're offering or qualified for the senior jobs they're offering is way fewer than the number of whites and Asians that are in those jobs. So if you have a completely fair job market, you're going to have very few, relatively speaking, black and Latino representatives. Okay. Again, this is simply the way that, that, that it works in terms of job qualifications and so forth. And nobody was mentioning that. When I said that the systemic racism drove me crazy, I, I wanted I want to say to people there are explanations for some proportion of these problems in policing and employment and so forth. Is that proportion of fifty percent, sixty percent, ninety percent? We can argue about that. That's technically not well defined at all, but does it account for some substantial proportion of it? The answer is yes. So if you're having this dialogue, I'm sorry, Charles, excuse me. Does what account for some substantial portion of differences it? Differences in uh, criminal behavior and differences in cognitive. Ability. Okay. So uh, it's just the way the numbers play out. And that's what I'm trying to point out in the book. But I was driven to this because this is not new stuff. I mean, the, the data in here, the, the basic facts have been known for a long time. It is that, and this is what I want to talk about with you. Um, we are in a wholly different situation now than either one of us has ever experienced before in our lives. At least that's my feeling. And the nature of the assault is not by liberals on conservatives. It is by the illiberal extremes on both the left and right assaulting the liberal project. And by the liberal project, I'm not using that term in its political sense. Sure. I'm talking about the Enlightenment, the Enlightenment yeah. project, reason, evidence. And, you know, one of the most important aspects of the liberal project, the willingness to accept that you may be wrong. And and the belief that that even though you have complications in understanding the data and understanding events, it is possible to explore them from different perspectives and and come closer and closer in an iterative kind of way to the truth. That assault is coming from both sides of the spectrum. 
And if it succeeds, it will mean the end of America as we know it. And, and this goes to what I refer to as the American creed. Even though you're a relative child compared to me, you're 72 and I'm 78, uh, you're old enough to remember when the American creed was a phrase that was in use. Uh, and people knew what you had in mind when you talked about it. And it's as simple as saying, uh, it comes from the Declaration of Independence, that all men are created equal, that they are born with certain inalienable rights. But central to the American creed is that people are to be judged as individuals. You you take the person that's in front of you for what that person is. And that was, that's, that's Martin Luther King's uh, famous uh, speech in the Lincoln Memorial. That's what he was demanding, rightly demanding. The assault, and I'll talk about the assault from the left. I'll focus on that without discounting the assault from the right. The assault from the, re- uh, the left repudiates the American creed. How so? It, it says the state must treat people as groups because certain groups have been systemically discriminated against, systemically oppressed. Other groups have been systemically advantaged. And therefore, and it's the therefore that's the problem, the state must use its power to create equal outcomes um, to overcome systemic racism. The state must treat people as groups. And if you do that, then you have a very different kind of America than an America in which the ideal is, no, you deal with people as individuals. So that's why I wrote the book. So here's what I can imagine a rebuttal might begin with. Well, the historical record, the institutional consequences of that historical record uh, etched in the lives of people of color, marginal populations, can't be effectively addressed in a one-off uh, individually focused policy frame. Uh, we have to get at, quote, the root. Mass incarceration is not just a bunch of people being prosecuted for crimes that they've committed. It's also the consequence of a neglect of the value of uh, black life. We wouldn't have had a war on drugs as uh, as uh, pernicious and, and uh, punitive as it turned out to be if the people at the butt end of it hadn't been minorities uh, it's a reflection of uh, blocked opportunity going back generations that then gets reflected in the development of the capacities of people, uh, which is then uh, being uh, dealt with in a harsh way. Uh, it's uh, the racism that is uh, in, endemic in American life, they're going to say, requires a much more robust than uh, colorblind uh, content of character, not color of skin uh, reaction and the effort to uh, to adhere to a individualistic framing of the problem is really avoidance. It's an avoidance of doing the hard work. Let's do the work. It's an avoidance of doing the hard work necessary to confront and reverse these, uh, these systemic and uh, deeply ingrained practices that uh, marginalize people of color. And I guess this is the point at which, I would say I'm perfectly happy to accept the reality of existing racism. What I want you to do, referring to my readers, is to accept the reality of certain things, facts on the ground. And the facts on the ground are that when it comes to policing, you do have differences, racial differences in uh, violent crime 
regardless of what the causes may be, with regard to people coming into the job market and the credentials they can present. No, I shouldn't use the word credentials because I hate credentialism. The, 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 the abilities they can present, the skill sets they can present are different, whatever the causes of those differences may be. And so if you are going to make good public policy, you can't do it by asserting it's all racism. You can't assert, do it by asserting none of it's racism. What you can do if you want to develop good policies is get a grip on how much of which is what. All right. So that. This is going to sound way too social sciencey, but I'll say it anyway. In terms of, of, of what social scientists try to do, which is to take a variety of variables into account at the same time, you're trying to partition the explanation of what's going on. So suppose that you take into <clears throat> the kinds of differences uh, in distributions and means that I'm talking about with cognitive ability and crime. Suppose you take those into account. And you also introduce the facts about uh, various outcomes for blacks and Latinos. And then you explain a certain amount of it by those differences. But you have a, a, another chunk that you can't explain. Fine. Policies ought to be based on our best estimate of what's feeding these differences in outcomes. If it's almost all unexplainable, by the group differences in behavior, so be it. And in that case, let's let's say, well, given those policies, what would work? And if a great big chunk of it is explained by the differences in behavior, then you say, well, we got a much smaller problem than we thought we had. And 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 that that is a that's a social science way of looking at it. But that's what we really need to do. Okay. Now you don't actually attempt to uh, carry out this partitioning uh, project in your book. You simply want us to recognize that there are disparities and those disparities are consequential and they can't all be racism. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, so then we're left with the problem of, uh, of uh, apportioning uh, how much of the disparity do we want to attribute to one thing or another. And you, you, you don't go into the causes of these disparities. There's a, reason, there's a reason for that. But But you know that your unsympathetic reader is suspecting of you that you think there's something wrong with uh, black and brown people and that that some intrinsic inferiority, some racial inferiority of genetic origins or whatever, that they're just not up to it. They're just not as bright they're, they're et cetera. And that's such a poison in the political discourse. I'm just, I'm just reporting an objective fact. Oh, absolutely. absolutely. So, and, and the reason I didn't go into trying to establish the partitioning, is because that stuff is intensely controversial empirically. I mean, if I had had, if I presented regression equation results in the book that attempted to say, well, here's the beta coefficient for, for uh, IQ and here's the one for family environment and so forth. Those are highly arguable. Those are highly, you know, people who of goodwill who are looking at the data closely have very different interpretations of that. What I'm saying in this book is the stuff in here is focusing on what is, not why, and it's not really controversial. And and that's and and so if I can get that across, and Lord knows I try, uh, I probably won't succeed. But if I could get that across, I want to establish a different framework for the dialogue. 
which is subsequently carried on. Here's the way I put it in the final chapter. I'm saying I'm I'm trying to make it possible for a social scientist to use IQ as an independent uh, variable in a regression equation without getting his career ruined. You know? Yeah, I, I remember <laughs> reading that. That's and not. It, that's, that's not much to ask. But. It didn't. It didn't used to be that way, by the way. Let me just report. When I was in graduate school in the 1970s, it was not even controversial. You run a wage regression. You're trying to explain how yeah. wages vary in a population, and you have a measure, the AFQT or whatever it is, of uh, cognitive ability, and you put it on the right-hand side, and it does explain some of the variation in wages yeah. amongst people. There's also common sense that yeah. people who can calculate better and who can comprehend better are going to be more effective in their employment and therefore will get higher wages. So it is an extreme ideological imposition to preclude putting that on the right-hand side of the, of the regression, it seems to me. And that was common, commonly accepted amongst empirical economists and of my generation going back 30, 40 years, but things have changed. Yes, it has. And uh, that's why I mentioned the uh, book by, well, I'm not sure if I did this. Uh, oh, no, you didn't, but you can mention it now. There's a book by a woman named Helen Pluckrose and a, a man named James Lindsay yeah. called Cynical Theories. And well, they do a really good job of explaining why this is not a woke ideology that came about in, 19, in 2014 or 2015. They, they trace the roots of this back to the beginnings of postmodernism in the 1960s. They show how it developed in, in a variety of ways. And what we and and so when when you say it used to be different about running regression equations, you were still and I was still functioning in a world in which the postmodernists were kind of a, a weird group of post uh, deconstructionists in literature and so forth. And then it started to, to move into the social sciences more slowly. And what's happened in the last twenty five thirty years is. That's taken over to a very large degree in a way that it had not taken over when you were doing your analyses in, in the 1980s. And unless you understand the, the breadth of this spread of this movement, I don't think you understand the danger we are in because here's what's scary to me is that I thought that it was academics that were mostly the people engaged in this kind of thinking. And last summer said to me, nope, uh, you're talking about the mainstream ideology at the New York Times and the Washington Post and down the list. And that is really, really scary uh, because those are the gatekeepers for what's respectable thinking. Let me see if I'm getting you. So there's a threat from the left and there's a threat from the right. You haven't talked about the threat from the right yet. The threat from the left uh, around a kind of relativism that uh, makes racial, e- racially equal outcomes the god of, of their uh, attention and then uh, looks away from facts and, and kind of anti-rational. Um, and uh, things like, I can't explain differences amongst individuals and their earnings in the labor market by reference to, amongst other things, differences in their cognitive ability, give an example of that. But what is the threat from the right? Uh, that's, this is where disaster is looming the closest. 
and I'm going to give a somewhat different take on it than probably other people have, but uh, I'm not really worried about the white supremacists and the white nationalists. I think they're a very small component of the right. I'll tell you who I'm worried about. I'm worried about all of the working class and middle class whites who have had it beaten into their, you know, they, they can't turn on the TV without yet another reference to the fact that they are bad people, that they have a white privilege, that they have been the cause of blacks problems and, and the problems of people of color in general, uh, and that they have <laughs> their ways or else. And an awful lot of these people are angered by this in a very visceral way. They're saying to themselves, hey, I have black colleagues at work, Latino work co-workers, and, and people in my neighborhood, and I treat them with respect, and I treat them with friendship. I have not behaved as a racist. I am trying to raise my kids and get them through college and make ends meet, and I'm working my ass off, and I sure don't see that I have any white privilege. And so there, I, you will not see an in-depth reporting on this kind of white person by the mainstream media. At least I haven't seen it. That's got to be a big number of people. And now let's, let's, let's get to the specifics here. Blacks constitute 12.7% of the population as of 2020. All right. Uh, Latinos are about 18% of the population. And, and let's face it, an awful lot of the energy for the progressive uh, critical race theory is coming from blacks specifically. So now you've got 13% of the population there. Non-Latino whites still constitute 60% of the population. That's way down from 30, 40 years ago, but it's still 60%. What is the proportion of that 60% who are really, really getting pissed? What is the proportion of them who are, and here's where the danger is, but are starting to say to themselves, well, guess what? I'm an identity too. And you want to play identity politics? Okay, we can go with that playbook. And if you get a substantial proportion of whites who not just voted for Donald Trump, you can have voted for Donald Trump for all sorts of reasons that doesn't make you uh, far right. Uh, but no, it's no longer that. It's no longer, it's no longer political in the sense it was before. It's a much more racially grounded, uh, fight than it was before. Now, do I know for a fact that you have this phenomenon going on? I can point to indicators. Uh, but how much of that is the result of the last couple of years and how much of that has been growing because of white uh, middle-class and working-class anger at, at the elites that goes back to the 1990s. I don't know about that. I'm saying that if whites start to play identity politics, then then basically we're facing some, some, some kind of disaster. I don't know how it's going to play out. What are the indicators that you could point to? The mask thing. Why should it be that what ordinarily would be a very simple question of this is what you do when you got a public health problem and here's the evidence on masks and uh, 
And should we do it or should we not? There would still be some disagreement. It wouldn't have broken as dramatically as it did red state, blue state. Uh, and it really did break dramatically in terms of red state, blue state. Um, the whole, the whole anger on the right. Well, I'm trying to, I'm, what are the specific indicators? It's so hard to get whites to talk honestly about race, even among themselves. Yeah. Even among themselves. That I can't prove what I'm about to say. Um, I suspect it's out there. And that is a shift away from racism as a moral issue to racism as a kind of, or the accusations of racism as a kind of attack on them as people. Um, yeah. I'm, I'm, I'm struggling with this because I'm, I'm thinking of, because I'm old enough to remember the 1950s and, and the early 1960s. And if you aren't that old, it's, and I, I was growing up in the Midwest and I went to Harvard. And so I was in, I was not in a Southern environment at all, but it's also true that whites were genuinely had their view of the problem fundamentally changed in the 1950s and early 1960s. Whites really did in an uncomplicated way say, say we have, we have really oppressed Blacks in the past. We, what we have done is unconscionable and we have to fix it. And it was a, it was not something that was coerced out of them as something they ought to feel. It was a deeply felt thing. And the, the triumph of the Civil Rights Act in 1964, I, I think is a reflection of that. And it wasn't very long after that, within the next three or four years, that in a way, the whole civil rights thing was handed over to the lawyers. So it was no longer, if you're an employer, it was no longer, we never even bothered to interview blacks before. Come on, we've got to reach out and find blacks who want these jobs and interview them and, and hire them if we can. It changed from that to, uh, if we don't have enough blacks, uh, the EEOC is going to be coming down on us. And uh, or do we have enough to be safe? You know, and that, and that diffused a lot of the, the moral thing. But that, then there was another transition that I'm worried about now. Because even then, people who started to think about dealing with the effects of racism legalistically, they still thought it was a good idea, by and large. You know, They didn't like some of the aspects of it, but it's still the thing you needed to do. The transition I'm talking about now is from, gee, I wish, you know, uh, I didn't have to worry about all these rules and regulations regarding hiring, regarding it if I'm a policeman, the way I behave and so forth, it's transferring from that to a, a more fundamental and more emotional. I've had it. I'm sick of it. I'm sick of blacks complaining about this yeah. and that and the other thing. It's time to suck it up. Nobody knows what the size of that reaction is, but it's got to be out there. 
I'm thinking about a book I read a long time ago by a German political scientist named Elisabeth Neula Neumann called The Spiral of Silence. And her argument was it was in the early decades after Nazism, and she was talking about German political opinion. Uh, and there was a line, there was a, there was a script that you were supposed to say as a decent German about Hitler and all of that. And of course, Hitler was Hitler. Uh, but the rise of Hitler was a complicated and, and, and profound development in German political culture. And it had many aspects to it, uh, you know, that, that were nuanced and, and complex. But, uh, the, the line, the line that you're supposed to say in public was a very narrow line. She speculated that a lot of people had problems with that line, thought outside the boundaries of what was acceptable opinion, but, you know, you just didn't say it. And because you didn't say it, no one else knew how many of you like-minded people might have said it. And her point was, this is unstable. This thing can unravel. And when it begins to unravel, it could be overnight. And you look up and you've got a completely different world. It's a very dangerous situation. And I feel that way. I don't know what you'd say to this about our time around the racial questions. I just wonder, so I'm agreeing with you here, how many statues you can take down of founding fathers, how many crowing exhibitions you can give about the demographics making white people into a minority. It's going to be a majority, minority country soon enough. White people are desperate. They're being marginalized. Um, how, how many books you can, in effect, ban uh, because they use a word out of, you know, the, the lexicon that's supposed to be acceptable. Um, how many accusations of racism that you can throw around and not engender in, in a backlash? I mean, I, if a white person were to stand up and say, wait a minute, what about my civilization? And then call attention to the Enlightenment or call attention to modern medicine would rest on the foundation of science, most of which, almost all of which is a product of European intellectual development. Uh, and so on. So where's your civilization? If a white person were to say that, I mean, could you really blame them? Well, yeah, you can blame them because it's racist to say that. You can't keep them from thinking it. If the only thing you have to say about crime, policing, and violence in the country is white cops killing black kids, how are you going to stop someone in suburban St. Louis or Baltimore or whatever from looking at the newspaper and coming to the conclusion, well, no, 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 it's black thugs who are killing each other and white people and everybody else besides. And I dare not drive into that city. I certainly wouldn't open a business there. And I moved my family 20 years ago. How are you going to stop them from saying that? So I want to say to the advocates of racial equity, can we talk about human opportunity, about American obligation to one another? If you don't think the schools are working, let's fix the schools for everybody. If you think the cops are too violent, oh, I'm, I'm fine with that. We can investigate that for everybody. Don't make it into a racial thing because you cannot contain that. Once it, and, and as you say, once the white identity politics thing gets real, you say game over, and I, I, I find it hard to argue with you about it. Well, I'm taking, let's go back to the policing thing. Am I in favor of major reforms of what's happened to the police in the United States over the last 30 years? I sure am. I think they become militarized. I think well, I could go through a whole list of things, which I think the profound reform of policing needs to be done. Um, there's a potential for putting together a coalition for that. Similarly, there are all sorts of us who think education, particularly for poor black kids and poor brown kids, is just pathetic. 
and and we, and it needs to be improved. But it's the educational system because the same curriculum that I think is so rotten for kids of color out here in rural Maryland where I live, my kids went to the public schools. It was pretty rotten out there too. The, the curriculum was. You didn't have a problem of violence as you do in many inner city schools, but uh, uh, which is the fault of the educational system. But you did have problems with really bad education. Okay, let's go fix those. And there's a coalition here. Here's here's shall we shall we speculate a little bit about how these this uh, this white revolt might play out? Because yeah, I've, I've been trying to think about this, and I didn't put much of it in the book <clears throat> because, again, I wanted the book to stay as tightly focused as I could on things where people on the center left could nod their heads and say, "Yeah, I'll buy that." And I didn't want to push that too far because that you very quickly get into very controversial stuff. Those inserts you were talking about where we have uh, colored uh, maps in the, the book showing the racial distribution, all that. Yeah. Reveal something very important. And that is there are lots of part of this country, parts of this country where the whites are still the overwhelming majority, sometimes 95%, 95% of the population. So what happens? Let's, let's say that you get a really aggressive, um, fight against systemic racism in employment and, and the demands on employers to have not just enough black or brown faces, uh, but also to uh, have them in positions that are commensurate with their proportion of the population. Suppose that that actually goes down at a national level. And I'm an employer who says, I just can't function that way because it's not that I don't, don't want to hire black and brown people, but if I hire them under the new rules, I'm just going to end up with a, a real hit on my ability to run my company. What's he going to do? There's an easy solution. Locate your company in a place where there aren't any black and brown people. Uh, and and if if it's a question of defunding the police, what do you think is going to happen? There are lots of places to move where you can leave your door unlocked at night. I live in one of them. Okay, so you are going to have whites in great numbers moving to what we call the red states. And you asked for what is the symptoms of this problem I'm talking about. The last insert uh, of, of the map of the United States showing the vote by by uh, uh, counties Uh the coincidence between the racial breakdowns and the political, uh, the voting breakdowns are really striking. So you have large parts of the country that we talk about red states and so forth, where you're going to have lots of people saying, I think that's where I want to live. This is coming apart on steroids. On steroids. And then we say, then you have federal agents coming into North Dakota, let's say. And they are trying to implement a whole bunch of new, more stringent regulations. Let's say they don't even have anything to do with race. Let's say that's the EPA or something. And so the people in North Dakota who the EPA depends on to enforce their edicts say, well, we'll get around to it when we can. Or maybe the governor of North Dakota, I'm just picking North Dakota, not because I have any special knowledge. Uh, the governor of North Dakota says, you know, we're going to be like Colorado was with marijuana. <laughs> we're just not, we're not going to, we're not going to enforce a set of laws. What are you going to do about it? 
And if that were to happen in just one or two localities, doesn't have to be a state, can even be cities, how long do you think it would be before that had a cascading effect? Now, I'm spinning out a scenario. Don't make me defend it, but I'll tell you what. Well, I'm uh, thinking about sanctuary cities as you spin out your scenario, because on the other yeah. side of the spectrum, that is already happening. Exactly. And and the I mentioned the marijuana thing in, in, in Colorado. There are a variety of other ways in which uh, the left has been very happy with federalism in the sense of, of uh, localities going their own direction, as long as it was in progressive directions. And so there is precedent out there. All of this, I'm not, I don't want to make it, please don't go away from this podcast, folks, saying I'm forecasting the breakup of the United States. I'm not. I'm saying forces are being put in play, which are not going to be easily controlled. And will they or won't they have these catastrophic consequences? No, we can't be sure. I'm just saying that the, the, the centrifugal forces now, and again, I'll appeal to you to see if, say if, if it seems, feels the same. The centrifugal forces now are qualitatively greater than they were 30 years ago. Qualitatively greater. Yeah, I think that's right. We are in the realm of speculation here, but, but I think you're onto something. But I, I got to come back to ground zero, Charles. Do you think black people are inferior genetically? <laughs> no. Okay, well. <laughs> I'm wait. laughing. I'm laughing because that's such a silly question. <laughs> <laughs> Tell me why it's a silly question, because that's a question that a lot of people are going to be asking me when they ask me, why did you have that guy on? He thinks black people are inferior. Okay. Shall I unpack my answer a little bit? Sure. Okay. Are there genetic differences among people who self-identify as different ethnicities? Yes. Uh, the most clear differences are at the continental level, you know, you know East Asia, Europe, uh, Sub-Saharan Africa, and so forth. Are these genetic differences, uh, A, to be expected? Yes, <laughs> absolutely. Somebody put it this way. He said, the chances that different groups that are separated geographically would have evolved exactly the same is about the same as the chances of dropping a handful of uh, silver dollars and they all land on their edge. You know, that's just not the way it works. If you have geographic boundaries, if you have uh, other kinds of boundaries, and you're talking about tens of thousands of years, uh, there is a lot of room for evolution to have taken place. And by the way, I'll just give you a little more background. Sorry. I love to talk about this because it's fascinating, all right? But also people have a very wrong impression. People, you know, Stephen Jay Gould was famous for this, said the braces can't be different because we only dispersed out of Africa 65,000 years ago or whatever. And, and evolution by mutation just takes forever. There hasn't been time for major differences to occur. And at the time he made that point in the 1980s, that was a respectable way to look at it. Subsequently, especially after the sequencing of the genome, we've learned that you can get much more rapid evolution than that through the variation that, that is called standing variation. Okay. I won't go any further into that. Mm-hmm. I will essentially say point number one is it's, it's, certainly true and we already know it's true that there are lots of uh population differences in in various genetic variants that is not a controversial statement among geneticists 
Do we know what effects those have on a variety of traits? Not very much. Uh, are we learning a lot more as time goes on? Yes, we are. Are these differences going to prove to be scary? No, they they won't. They, there will be differences. Um, they will be usually moderate or modest, and they all involve overlapping distributions. And this is a this when I swear. I am amazed by how otherwise intelligent people have such a hard time grasping the concept of overlapping distributions, which is to say you've got two bell curves, to coin a phrase, uh, and they overlap. Millions of blacks are smarter than millions of whites, despite the existing difference in cognitive scores. And by the way, millions of whites are better coordinated than millions of blacks, despite the black dominance in, in major sports. So yes, you have, you have differences between groups. They do not determine your fate. They, they don't lend themselves to superiority, inferiority, because they're bundles. Each, if you think of the bundle of characteristics you have, you know of a whole bunch of things about you personally that are above average and below average and somewhere near the average whether we are talking about beauty or charm or, or industriousness or whatever they are, you have this very complicated set of attributes. And the idea of saying you can say one of these set of attributes is superior and the other is inferior is just an abuse of the language. Um, okay, okay. Let me, let me stop you because there's yeah. a lot of light on the table. I want to try to summarize. So we're talking about, populations, not about individuals. Right. The claim that uh, populations which have descended from ancestors who were isolated from one another for long periods of time could have distributions of genetically determined traits that are different from one another is an uncontroversial, almost self-evident claim. Mm-hmm. Um, that needn't be a big deal. Right. Uh, it certainly needn't be saying that any population is inferior because there's not one trait. There's a lot of different kinds of traits which are differently distributed between these population groups, and they will manifest with uh, uh, different dimensions of human performance because human performance isn't one thing. Uh, so far, so good. Um, but here's the thing that I keep thinking about right tail selection, the prestige, the, the, and we live in a world where this stuff gets communicated so quickly. So people who are outstanding performers who are uh, in the professional sports, uh, who are uh, at the top of some intellectual thing, who are, you know, innovators and in some hard, uh, area of study or, or human activity are going to be selected from way out here. And if I have two populations, they might, with overlapping curves, they might differ modestly at the mean, but the relative numbers that are way, way, way out there could be differing by quite a bit. Yeah. And that could drive the conversation. Yep. Not enough Black professors of economics. Well, let me not pat myself on the back, but I'll just report this stuff is hard, guys. This, this stuff is very demanding. You want to get a PhD in economics, you had better be 
really, really sharp at the kind of stuff that economists do. I'm sure the same thing is true about philosophy, about English literature, and you know, many other fields. And so we're looking for proportionality in the representation of professors of economics. I give that as one example. And we're operating against a backdrop where, according to Murray, the populations in question differ at the mean with respect to the, one of the traits. This is going to be your G-factor intelligence uh, trait that's really important to being effective as a professor of economics. And so it's unreasonable, it's unrealistic to expect that there would be racial proportionality there. And if you insist on it, you're going to get tyranny because you're going to have to override the natural choices that people are making. And you're going to get resentment and quite possibly a lot of blowback and uh, backlash from your insistence on something which is simply not feasible to accomplish if you maintain standards for everybody. Uh, yeah. Am I reading you? Am I reading yeah, you? And, and it, it, this plays out in all sorts of different ways. Uh, for those of you who are not mathematically oriented, what you just said about differences in small differences in means can translate into big differences at the tails is statistically absolutely true. And, and so, well, here's, here's an example of why you have to start thinking in terms of, of combinations of skills as opposed to any one dimension. Uh, if you're going to use the word inferior and superior, then whites better get used to the idea that they're inferior to these stations because the evidence is pretty clear that you have uh, elevated visual spatial skills, especially uh, on among East Asians. And visual spatial skills are really, really important for operating at the extremes in STEM fields, science, technology, engineering, mathematics. Now there is a whole bunch of, there's a lot of argument at this point <laughs> with whites, I think, being overrepresented and trying to make the argument, saying, well, yeah, uh, the East Asians have elevated skills, but they don't have the same creativity and they don't have the same persistence and so forth that whites have. Uh, and so it's not the case that they are producing all these wonderful things the East Asians are that whites are producing. Well, it's, I find it interesting that whites have discovered that that's important to take into account these other characteristics. But it's also true that there is a legitimate argument to be made that, well, uh, you know, whites with IQs of 150 uh, and, and East Asians with IQs of 150 have somewhat different other qualities that are related to important life outcomes. And that's true. But that also means that you just can't focus on one thing. The second point to be made, however, there are lots of points to be made about this, about the extremes. The first is we are talking about the extreme. If you want to talk about a nation where people can live together and 99 out of 100 of them are at a point on the spectrum where it's not a problem and you've got 1% where you've got this disparity, these larger disparities, okay, how big a deal is that if you're talking about the functioning of society? But and here's where... You cannot say one thing on this subject without having to say another thing. But here's where the importance of differences within that top percentile have so much impact on life outcomes. I use the example in uh, the book because you, so you say to yourself, suppose you're at the 99th uh, percentile of IQ. What difference does it really make if you're at the 99.5th? And the analogy I use is... Uh, is in sports. 
uh, male basketball in the building. Yeah. Well, you know what? If if you just have a measure of male basketball ability, probably every starter on every college basketball team in a major school in the country is in the 99th percentile. Yeah, because 1% of the population is a very large number of people. Exactly. Think of, of your high school and you had stars on your basketball team. How many of them went on to college? Uh, first first uh, team on the college. Sure. I know for my high school, I don't know if we ever had anybody. And and the fact is, of course, college starters are all in the 99th percentile. So is LeBron James. <laughs> well, you know what? There is yes. a huge difference within that top percentile. And the right. same is also true. Somebody at the 99th percentile of IQ is a smart person. Somebody at the 99.9th can do things that the person at the 99th percentile can't do. And so it's a very small chunk of the population. But if you're looking at who is on the staffs of the quantitative hedge funds in New York City making zillions of dollars, they are overwhelmingly uh, people who are out at the 99.9th percentile. And that being the case, given the differences in cognitive ability, that means they are Asians and they are whites overwhelmingly. Well, a lot of them are Jewish, Charles. Yeah, and a lot of them are Jewish. That, that You know what? Just the fact that you raise that is another reason for people who are listening to us to stop getting so excited about this. Uh, because if you want to start saying that some groups are superior to other groups in different kinds of skills, you don't have whites versus blacks in this kind of calculus. You have all sorts of different groups. Guess what? It's quite possible the Parsi are the most intelligent at, on average of anybody in the world. A lot of you haven't even heard of Parsi. I don't so, know who they are. Is that Iran? It's a very small group that originally was Persian. They moved to India. Okay. They've been in a lot of separate Parsis. <laughs> they're a very small group, but boy, do they have very high skill levels. All right. We are a long way from talking about white superiority in this conversation. Yeah. Look at all the different groups we've talked about that in some skills, some issues are at the top, others are closer to the bottom, but there's an awful lot of complexity in this. Okay, so the answer to my question is no, Charles Murray does not believe that black people are inferior. Moreover, he thinks it's a silly question, and I think he's explained adequately why. Uh, I want to talk about crime and punishment, though, Charles, because I want to ask you whether or not, so you talk about uh, violent crime and you talk about uh, IQ um, and you go to saying about IQ, well, people are going to get in the job. Some jobs are very intensive in terms of IQ demands. And if you insist on proportionality, you're going to have a problem given that the groups are different at the average. What about crime? Uh, the, the differences that I saw in your book, you have this thing you, you, and thank you for the care with which you approach the question. You take a sample of cities that report by race the offending rates in the categories that you're interested in, and then you simply assemble a, well, what's the likelihood that it's a black who commits, that if you're black, you commit the crime? What's the likelihood if you're Latin, you commit the crime? If you're Asian, if you're white, um, you don't use those words. You use African and European. You explain why people are going to get, they're going to go off just about that as soon as they hear you say African and European, but never mind. And then you take the ratio, the ratio of the proclivity of a person if they're African descended and the peculiarity of a person if they're European descended, 
to be reported as having offended uh, in this way. And those numbers are huge. Those numbers are 10 to 1, 15 to 1, 20 to 1. And you say that can't be inconsequential. And uh, what I want to ask you is to the person who comes along and says, well, okay, those numbers are what they are, but, you know, poverty, segregation, et cetera. So don't tell me it's genetic. Don't tell me that people are born criminal. That's a, a racist thing for someone to say. And I want to know how you respond to that. The book is about what is not why. And with crime, I don't think anyone doubts that poverty plays a role, that childhood disadvantage plays a role. Guess what? Among whites, crime is concentrated in the white lower class. Um, so is there an environmental component to that? Absolutely. Is there a genetic component? I don't know. I don't care in this regard. If I am a black parent in a black inner city trying to raise my children, I am living in a an environment which is more dangerous for my kids, much more dangerous than the environment of the white parent with kids out in the suburb. Way more dangerous. It doesn't make any difference why it's more dangerous, the fact it is more dangerous. And therefore, if we are concerned about the black parent, we also need to be concerned about having public policy that does its best to keep that black parent and his or her children safe. The public policy implications of a high crime neighborhood have zero to do with the causes of the difference. Well, I'll amend that statement. If it were the case that we knew that uh, providing money would solve the problem, if, if we had case studies in the past to say it's poverty and guess what? When you have places where you've provided poor people with way more resources and they aren't poor anymore, the crime has gone way down, then public policy then the cause would be important, right? But, Glenn, we have been trying since 1965 all sorts of massive efforts to deal with those kinds of causes, and they have not produced the effects that everyone hoped for. Uh, If that's the case, then at this point, the black parent and the black child is saying, I want good policing, good, effective policing, And then we can talk about what good, effective policing is. But that's where we make our changes. I've come full circle. Earlier on, you were saying you solve the problems of policing. You solve the problems of education. And that's what I'm saying has to be at the top of the priority list, given the differences in in crime rates. Did you ever see my friend, the late Mark Kleiman's book, When Brute Force Fails? It's about 15 years old out of Princeton University Press. Mark was... uh, a public policy uh, professor at Harvard and at UCLA. Uh, bottom line, though, and, and he finished his career at NYU. He says, get the lead out of uh, the environment, heavy metal effects, neurological development earlier. He says, send nurses home with indigent mothers from the hospital with their infants so that they get it schooled about how to take care of this kid during these uh, formative period. 
He says, change the uh, uh, hours that school starts. Don't have it be 8 a.m. to 2 p.m. Have it be 10 a.m. to 4 p.m. or 6 p.m. So that kids are not free roaming the streets with nothing to do for hours of daylight time after school is over. And he's got a gazillion little small bore. But when you add them all up, he says, look, we could have less crime and less punishment if we were smart about how we administered incentives matter. He, he recognizes that he says the studies show that you can make the sentence as long as you want to. But if you don't increase the likelihood and the quickness with which the punishment is administered, you're not going to impact on their behavior. Shorter sentences, but more swift and certain application of them, et cetera. These are all, it seems to me, at least, you know, things worthy of taking on board if one's trying to do something about crime. And by the way, you would take them on board regardless of the racial composition of the population. Exactly. And and I was nodding my head as you went through a bunch of those things, because they sound like ideas that I don't know if they're going to work, but I think that they're good ideas. And some of them uh, I emphatically agree with, I mean, the evidence on the importance of, of swift and certain punishment as opposed to long punishment is, is overwhelming. But I could nod my head. It had nothing to do with race. You ought to be sending nurses home with indigent white mothers as well as indigent black mothers. You ought to be changing the school schedule for everybody. Uh, Yeah. So you solve the problems as best you can. And systemic racism should not be the framework through which you decide what good public policy should be. But you're skeptical about the effectiveness of intervention, especially on the cognitive side. I mean, I've been saying this. I wonder what you'd say in reaction. I've been saying about affirmative action, and you and I agree about affirmative action today. We didn't agree in 1995, but we agree today. Uh, You know, I was against it before I was for it, before I was against it, kind of thing like that. But I've been saying, look, it's no surprise that you've got a relative low number of Blacks in a lot of different pursuits because we haven't developed fully our human potential because history hasn't dealt us a very good hand. What affirmative action ends up being is a cover for the consequences of that history and the lack of that development. We've got plenty of time here. We don't have to try to get to parity overnight. Let's focus on development. But let's keep the standards comparable for everybody and have faith that in the fullness of time, Black people will measure up to the standards. Don't lower the standards for us in deference to our history. Recognize that the history and the bad hand that we've been dealt has left us less fully developed than we might have been for a variety of reasons we could go into and address that. That would be the long-term solution. This thing that we're well into now, we've been doing this for 40, 50 years, affirmative action. This thing that we're into now is a formula for disaster because it creates all these venues like the Georgetown Law Center. I'm sure you saw the story out of Georgetown where where you select with different criteria and then you get different performance after the fact. And then you you turn your head away from it or you cover it up or whatever. There's resentment. There's shame. There's anger. There's lying and whatnot. Let's address the development problem. But if I read Charles Murray correctly, he doesn't have much confidence that there's any thing one could do that would have the effect of over the long term enhancing that development, at least on the cognitive side. And I think that's one reason why a lot of people are so, you know, unhappy with you. Uh, you know, that, that well, kind you know, of pessimism. I'll, I'll, I'll give you a couple of things I think could make a difference, but I don't know how you bring them about. <clears throat> um, one thing is change black culture 
so that black kids are not punished in school for acting white, particularly in, in you know, schools that are in uh, virtually all black. Uh, that, as far as I am told, and I've had a little personal observation of it, but mostly it's through the literature, is, is prevalent. And it starts from a very early time that you are discouraged from studying hard and taking the books home and having your nose in a book and all that because you're acting white. It would be really great if, if that cultural, if that cultural norm changed, I think that would have an effect. And if for that matter, our mutual friend, John McWhorter, I'd had, he told this story and I hadn't heard it before. I've read it someplace <laughs> that when he was a kid, he didn't try very hard uh, in school because he knew he didn't have to. He knew that he was going to get into a good college because he was really smart and he could, uh, he could coast along. Okay. You have all sorts of ways in which, um, and I haven't even gone into the problem of when you have strong affirmative action, whites assume as their default assumption that a black who's been hired or a black who's been admitted yeah. is an affirmative action. Okay. We haven't even gone into that. There are so many ways in which what you want is a situation in which a black person or a brown person can walk into a job application, uh, conscious of what their own qualifications are and abilities and think they've gotten a fair shake in terms of the way they've been evaluated or into an admissions process. And if, if they can be confident that they've gotten a fair shake, I think an awful lot of the, of the need for affirmative action goes away because that's really what you want. What, what you want is the sense, what I want, what you want is a sense that the world is, is giving you a fair shake, not the whole world, but me personally, when I'm applying to school, me personally, when I'm applying for a job or any, doing anything else in life, and that people are not holding me back because of the color of my skin. And once you've done that, you've achieved the American ideal. If you want to say it's hard to achieve that American ideal, if you want to say we failed for a long time in many ways, no argument, but it's the right ideal. But you didn't address my question about development and racial differences in cognitive ability and futility of intervention. Uh, and, you know, uh, God's not finished with us when he deals us our genetic hand. That's a sentence. That's a sentence from a review of mine of the bell curve way back when, way back when, <laughs> when I was a better Christian than I am today. But I'm, I'm calling attention to something, which is the predetermination vision that the, you know, it's done. You've been dealt your genetic hand and you're going to have to play it like it is. It doesn't mean you're a less valuable person, but it is what it is. And this is a statement of faith, not of science, believing the capacities of African Americans to do stuff. If we, and I'm now talking about black people, not about society, determine we're going to do what you said about culture and emphasize the values associated with achievement and success. We're going to attend to our domestic life and take up the responsibilities of raising our children more effectively than we have done because our families are in disarray. Um, we're going to affirm our citizenship in this great republic and instead of uh, throwing away an enormous inheritance of 
civic value in terms of being free people and the most powerful and most successful democratic experiment in the history of the world, things of this kind. We can make a difference if we determine that we will make a difference. Don't try to talk me out of that, Charles. I'm not going to try to talk you out of that. And I would say that Dick Hernstein wouldn't try to talk you out of it either. There in the complex, incredibly complex uh, mix of stuff that makes us who we are. We know two things for absolutely certain. And one is there's a great big environmental component and the other is there's a great big genetic component. And there you do, that does not amount to genetic determinism. Uh, it does not amount to a denial of free will. It does not allow us to say of any given child, no matter what, we can have the complete DNA of the child, we can have a complete socioeconomic background for the child, and our ability to predict what that individual child will become is really limited, okay? We, we just don't know. There's a huge amount of uncertainty. So genetic determinism is, in my opinion, kind of a straw man in this sense. I don't know of anybody, including any geneticist, who believes in genetic determinism. Uh, they believe in genetic influences, but they also believe in environmental influences. So. That corn seed, if you drop it on fertile ground in Iowa, it grows. If you drop it in the Mojave Desert, it doesn't grow. That's uh, correct. That, that's from the bell curve, as I recall. Uh, borrowed from Richard Lewontin, though. So, you know, this goes back a long way. <laughs> okay. Well, this has been Charles Mary. If you want, if you've got something else you want to say before we close, Charles? We covered a lot of ground. Um, we did. Uh, you know, you know, you are going to, t- this is not going to make you any more popular, uh, having done this show, I don't think. Here's my, here's what I have to say about that. If you want to cancel me for having on Charles Murray, who's one of the most impactful social scientists of the last quarter of the 20th and this first part of the 21st century, go ahead, cancel me. I can live with being canceled for that. Thank you, Glenn. You earned it, Charles. Okay. So we're signing off. Uh, again, my thanks to Charles Murray. The book is Facing Reality. Two Facts About Race in America. Uh, Everybody should read this book. So thanks again, Charles.